0: If if medicine wants to seriously start to think about improving access to medicines, how do we get people to be more vaccinated or how do we get people to be more engaged? You have to diversify what you think is a valid way of experiencing disease and be inclusive of that. And if you don't do that, then people can see through the performativeness of these sort of inclusive initiatives.
1: Welcome to a new podcast miniseries from Centric Lab on the role of information, decolonisation, and informed consent in the healthcare industry in COVID nineteen. Over the three episodes, Lab Director Araceli Camargo talks with three brilliant medics from University College London. They break down what is a vaccine. How do the different ones' work, the importance of decolonising the West view on medicine and care, and the need for the healthcare and medical profession to change its often supremacist approach to knowledge. A great takeaway from this series for me, as I listened to it, and I edited, is that communication is everything, and whilst innovation in the healthcare industry and technology is all the rage, greater investment in the so-called soft skills of healthcare will lead to greater population health outcomes. This series was made possible by our Patreon supporters to whom we're very grateful. Our patrons support independent research for the people, free from prejudice and politics, about place and health. If you like this show and believe in supporting work like it, please head over to patreon.com forward slash lab and donate whatever you can. In return, your donations provide you access to the Urban Health Council's reports, studies, events, and more. The links are in the show notes. Now, over to Aracheli for the show, where this episode focuses on the need to decolonize healthcare.
2: So let's go into the conversation about discrimination and the history of discrimination when it comes to vaccine and the relationship between vaccinations and marginalized groups. So, marginalized groups, meaning people who are experiencing poverty. Um, people that are discriminating. So, in our um, in in this context, we're talking about Black people, Indigenous people, people of color, as well as other inter- intersectionalities such as trans people, LGBTQ people, um, and or people that are neurodiverse. We haven't actually been speaking about this in terms that I haven't seen in the in the in the in the, in the macro conversations that people that are neurodiverse may not have certain cognitive or the same cognitive abilities. For example, someone that's dyslexic, I'm dyslexic. And if I wanted to read some of this information, some of the scientific information, I have to take it slowly, especially if I haven't run into it before. And there is no friendly literature for those that are dyslexic, for those that may not be able to 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 comprehend information in the way that is being disseminated. We're also not talking about that. and I think that definitely plays in terms of to discrimination and to consent. But anyway, Selena, do you want to take us through some of the case studies or some of the examples um, that you have looked at in terms of the history of vaccine discrimination, both in in the rollout of vaccines, but also in the experimentation of of communities and vaccines?
3: Before we go on to that, there was one point that I wanted to make about um, accountability. So accountability comes up a lot in healthcare, um, and I think it's something that's really systemic within what science and within what you call it uh, medicine. So one, one just distinction that I would like to make before I move on to the vaccine discrimination is that accountability is, um, as most was saying, uh, was that people think that um, science is infallible, but it isn't, as we've said. But and so accountability is retrospective in nature. It looks at risk. It tries to make sure that people aren't harmed. And that and that is a fair enough distinction. But there is an, another side to responsibility. About this It's is about responsibility. Is, is itself is not um, just confined to risk and retrospective and negative responsibility. But it's also something that's um, looking at positive. It's looking at future orientated. Responsibility—that is what allows us to be flexible. What's what allows us to um, be open about mistakes and try and make sure that mistakes are corrected for the future. But of course, with any any progress or anything, we cannot deny mistakes. It is something that's in, in like embedded within um, progress. So. That's just one something. Something I want to say about responsibility. And I think it's really important with vaccines, with with any patient dissatisfaction, that it is something that's said to people, and it's something that they feel open enough to discuss with people, so we can make it better for everyone uh, in the future. So back to vaccine discrimination. So there's like multiple examples with um, like discrimination in healthcare, but with vaccine in particular. So there has been there was that recent article about what the using um, the like Africa as a as a, as a ground for COVID um, trials and things, and, and previous before that was the TB as well. There's a, this subconscious bias within our system which um, thinks of Black African American communities or brown communities as sort of. Um, test subjects as guinea pigs, as um, as as a way to like um, perhaps use the risky um, um, like trials on them rather than uh, rather than um, the Western communities, which are meant to be safer. Um, or oh, oh, as well, not safer, but as in after we've trialed it somewhere else, we'll we'll use it here once it's safe. So there is this dissociation of empathy, perhaps, from considering that. Some countries, perhaps because they're developing countries or lower socioeconomic statuses, they don't have as much rights to their own health, to their own well-being, and that is something that comes a lot up comes up a lot in trials for not just vaccines, actually, but for a lot of the medical literature.
2: Let's just untangle some of, some of, some of your points, Selena. So the there was at the beginning reporting that. Black and Indigenous and other communities of color were hesitant of taking the vaccine because of these historical discriminations, which I would say are very explicit. We have lived for 400 years with seeing and being exposed to Black people suffering. And yes, I do think that that curtails and that diminishes, um, empathy and creates anti-Blackness. Um, and it does create a communal, oh, well, it's okay if, if, if they serve as a, as that experiment and that needs to stop, but equally it does, at least here in the United States, that narrative of, of of Black communities having a hesitancy and a rightful hesitancy to being vaccinated was being taken taken as an excuse as to, oh, well, they, they just don't want to be vaccinated. And again, we're touching on the informed consent side that if the right communication hasn't, be, hasn't been given, including Having black doctors and and black scientific staff going and talking to black communities, including having town hall meetings with black communities to properly answer the questions that they may have, and including um, creating centers that are close, vaccination centers that are close to black communities, then we can't, again, just blame the individual and, and say, oh, well, they simply don't want to be vaccinated because, again, that that increases the, the discrimination factor. And, and it's also important to note the example that you were given, sorry, that you were um, giving that this isn't something that is really far away. This is something that constantly happens. And it happened within the context of COVID, as you said, that they wanted to use some African countries as a, as a initial test bed for um, that tuberculosis medicine um, could be used to fight um, COVID. And they thought, oh well, these French, specifically these French, two French doctors that were in the media, you can Google it, decided that it would be okay to test this out on, on, on African communities. And, and so it's there and it continues to, to be the, that that anti-blackness within, within the medical, within the medical industry. So then the next thing that I wanted to open up is who <laughs> Who do we choose as disposable and non-disposable in terms of getting the vaccine or sorry, getting the vaccination, right? Getting people to safety. Miriam, do you want to say something as to, yes, the choosing and some of your work that you've been doing on activism for um, for the vaccine?
0: I think the the choosing bodies image is actually very accurate and it speaks to a whole form of study, particularly within medical anthropology, championed by a particular guy called Paul Farmer who did research in Haiti and has talked about the very real physical material permeations of colonisation, how that affects um, infrastructure in the present day and how that then affects access to healthcare. But in the context of access to vaccines, which is very closely related Related to access to healthcare. um, I think it's important to discuss the idea or the fallacy that we don't have enough vaccines. I think that is the biggest kind of facilitator of these particular justifications or um, excuses or explanations for why particular people aren't being vaccinated. Because there is Diff, there's people people of color within western countries who potentially have access to a vaccine that they are unable to access because of lack of information a reduced communicative communicative capacity and not a mutually intelligible communication form etc uh, but i want to start by first actually talking about the quite obvious massive discrimination uh, between the global North and South in terms of uh, the construction of an incredibly flawed uh, vaccine manufacturing system that relies on uh, essentially uh, private ownership of vaccines. Um, And I'm, I'm not gonna get into the whole debate of like, you know, capitalism and all of that, but I just want to talk about In the extreme scenario that we're in, in the context of a pandemic, um, and in the context of a pandemic that has led to vaccines essentially being publicly funded, like research done at uh, Universities Allied for Essential Medicines, which was recently published and written about in The Guardian, uh, was... You know, found that 97% of, of the Oxford vaccine was actually publicly funded. And I do try to call it the Oxford vaccine just to remind myself constantly that it was a team of university scientists who spent quite a lot of time over 10 years doing this research that was essentially majority publicly funded. So to think about this in context, we have a vaccine that's largely been publicly funded, that has now is now in private ownership, um, that has then resulted in it needing to be bought back using more tax money and then distributed to the UK population. And then what's even more absurd is because of this private ownership, we create an artificial shortage. We create this invisible, not invisible, but we create an artificial problem, which is that we have the capacity to make more vaccines. Um, And we actually have made enough vaccines. It's just that European countries are bulk buying them instead of allowing for other other countries to have a share. But that's a separate problem. We pretend that we can't make enough vaccines, but we absolutely can. We just can't under our current legal infrastructure, which essentially privileges two things. Exclusive ownership of intellectual property, particularly intellectual property that is medical or that is really really difficult to Uh, not make money from. And then the second thing is it privileges a profit-driven research and development system, which means that the reason we don't have a COVID vaccine is not because coronavirus didn't exist previous to this, Was that because there was no profit in making a coronavirus uh, vaccine before this point. So I think it's important to kind of frame these uh, discussions within the larger material realities of how this structure actually physically, legally Um, literally manifest. So although I think it's important to highlight and and discuss uh, individuals who might say certain outlandish things on the news or say things that are quite extreme and sensationalist and easy to point at and say, oh, well, that's very racist. I think it's also important to pair that with um, a a very real discussion about our research and development system, IP laws and international laws, and the fact that several countries... Refuse to vote in favor of a waiver of the IP laws that would essentially allow for all pharmaceutical companies, in theory, to be able to make these vaccines, um, whereas our current system is an exclusive ownership system, which means that only particular people are legally allowed to make the vaccine. And also, finally, discuss how to, to begin to even address some of the remnant colonialities that um kind of embed themselves in the way that people access healthcare and the way that they are given healthcare or whether healthcare is even provided in the first place, we have to kind of talk about these larger systems that are they're not going to go away just because people stop saying racist things. We could all be very Unracist in the way that we we have dialogues, but it wouldn't it wouldn't change anything in terms of the actual physical infrastructure that we need to work with. And if it's not a system that is working, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter how many conversations we have. You're going to have the same kind of replications um, of inequalities, kind of c- continuously constituting each other and making it kind of exponentially
2: worse. So. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, I went no. Time. No. 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 That was that was that was brilliant. I can see your handout, Manasmani. So I just wanted to clarify a couple of the points. I don't think we should be afraid of being anti-capitalist in this in, in this conversation because number one, it was capitalism that got us into this problem, and capitalism will continue to keep this problem moving um, because of everything structurally that you just described, Miriam. Um, in terms of racism, racism happens at a system racism is systemic. At the person-to-person level, it's discrimination. Um, So we want to be important that 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 lexicon is there. Um, And in fact, a lot of um, African-American literatures and scholarships advocate for really the full name of capitalism to to be said, which is racial capitalism or racist capitalism. That structure does not exist without the discrimination quite literally, in the in the way that you are saying, these people can, these people cannot um, partake, as you said, in these profit-based systems. And I think it's very important, absolutely, that we understand this at a systemic and global level. And this also goes to the work of people like Angela Davis, and more recently, Ex condate of... Being an anti-racist, which means is the dismantling of the policies and that uphold the policies and the laws that uphold these racist systems. Um, Okay, Uh, Manasmani, go ahead.
4: Yeah some wonderful points there from uh, both Miriam and you. I just to contextualize that like coming from personal experience. I'm Indian and m- most of my family is still back home in India most of my family and friends. And the situation with covid in India right now is nightmarish to say the least. Um every every hour we get we get devastating news about someone uh, close to us having either caught covid or having passed away from covid and It's quite a lot to take in, even as someone who isn't in India currently. um, I can't even imagine how stressful and anxiety-ridden the situation in India right now is. And all of this ties in with a lot of what Miriam said. Uh, One of the countries that had asked for a waiver on these vaccine patents was India. And we have countries like the UK, the US opposing the patents to be released and it's, it's quite interesting to see how, you know, who, who supports what, um, in this situation. Uh, we, we had, I, I saw an article recently about, um, Bill Gates saying that he's opposed to, um, uh, wavering these patents. And it's quite interesting that, Cut, like that one of the big, one of the richest people in the world is opposed to intellectual property being used to save lives and all of this again comes right back into choosing bodies and ch- seeing you know who who is disposable um when when you look at you the us and uk and other British countries responses it's quite clear that they think that bodies in the global south are disposable and it's not to say that the Indian government has done an incredible job at handling the pandemic, but it it does compound the issue when you see that there's all these international political agendas having very real impacts on people's lives. It's quite an unfortunate situation, really. And again, going back to colonialism, a lot of this definitely has to do with a colonial capitalist thinking um, of profit-making and of money as a driver for innovation in healthcare and medicine. A big historical example of this is the Bombay Plague um, in 1896, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which was this outbreak of uh, bubonic plague in uh, the Indian city of Bombay, now known as Mumbai. And the situation was especially bad because of um, how quickly Bombay had become urbanized, but without any thought given to the infrastructure. So many people, many workers were living in um, overcrowded situations with bad uh, sewage and other infrastructural sanitary conditions. But um, British colonial medical officials at that time thought very conveniently thought that this was an individual Indian lifestyle problem where Indians were unsanitary or uncivilized. And in, again, tying in with the idea that science is not infallible, they had previously witnessed this great fire of London in 1666, um, which, according to them, had stamped out Yersinia pestis or the bacteria for a bubonic plague out of the soil. So their big public health measure was to lead, was to, um, implement forced evacuations of Indian laborers and workers in uh, living in uh, Mumbai from these overcrowded buildings and literally set fire to many of these buildings to kill the bacteria. And that the only thing that did, that, that managed to do, was to exasperate and worsen the living conditions that many of these people were living in and force them into even more overcrowded situations and didn't really do anything for curbing the disease at all so it's very interesting to see how all these colonial mindsets inform science and public health policy and um, even back in late from the late 19th century to now and um, how this has re- very real and devastating impact uh, impacts on people's lives to this day
2: yeah 100 and i think we might as well continue to to talk then about colonialism, and then we'll do the final bit on on informed consent, and we'll that's how we'll t- um, tie up this conversation. But the, the the what you keep saying about science not being a bible or being the end all is an important point. Is that science hasn't even I don't even well I should specifically say Western white male led science hasn't had the historical moral intelligence. For anyone to trust it, it gave us eugenics. It has given us many complications, including that, for example, so much of the scientific work is tested only on men and very little is known about things like menstruation or other endocrine complications that affect cis um, women. And we have so many more ailments in terms of our reproduct- in our reproductive system because science hasn't even cared to look at us. And that is the point of these conversations is to constantly hold these systems accountable uh, and point out also <laughs> their, their deep fallacies. Um, so Selena, do you wanna add your bit to the conversation?
3: Yeah, yeah, you know, it brings on like it, it rather it carries on what you're saying about the the white and the Western perspective of whatever, um, research basically. So it's been um, what I'd like to ask is like, do you like you know which countries like produce the amount of like research? Like, which ones are the most dominant in producing research? Is obviously the Western ones. It's the is the white Western perspective, and if you look at a map, it actually distorts like. Um, if you look at, at a map distorting, like which ones, which countries produced most amount of research, you'll find that some areas are completely like so, like really thin and really, um, such as like South America or Africa or like really um, um, like places just don't have input into scientific research. And, ba- and scientific research is what drives policy changes, what, what drives policy rather, and d- it drives governance and systems. And without those perspectives, without um, inclusive um, cultural perspectives, we don't have an idea. And we can't change the the ethos of um, healthcare, of what you call it, vaccine vaccine dissemination to different countries, etc. And there are like some um, organisations you try to like include, what you call it, um, and, and try to create a, a, a bigger, a better dialogue between different um, countries to, to produce like a, a good, couple, like a more inclusive cultural perspective, such as the indigenous psychology movement. I think it is. and with with this comes with the, the perspective not just about ethos, about who should we be focusing more on money or other th- or what you call it, other things, um, but also about like what is the role of religion in, into what you call it health care What is the role of spirituality? What is because um into health medicine? Because these things are so intrinsic within us. Like having a vaccine is not so, just so simple as having a jab in your arm. It's it's to do with your whole body. It's to do with your mental health. And I don't think people realize that environment and all these kind of systems actually do influence how we experience the world. sorry that that might have gone to, uh, into a
2: no 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 ones. no no. That's that's th- those are really really good points. So. Within this colonialist viewpoint, I do want to bring in the different scholarships, because in what you're saying about what research is out there, there's a lot of indigenous research. And I mean, indigenous with a capital I globally, a lot of indigenous research in medicine or certainly in healthcare that doesn't get platformed and doesn't get then disseminated, but it's there. And that is something that I do want to bring forward um, because we are only taking the one route forward, which is the Western route forward, which is a vaccination that looks like a jab, but we're not talking about a vaccination that in terms of exactly what you just said, Selena, that looks more holistically at what are you taking into your body meditation And yoga, yes, those are two things that have been taken over by the West, but they are indigenous technologies and indigenous wisdoms that have been used successfully within within a medical or curative framework for millennia. So before we get deeper into that, Miriam, did you want to say something? It's it's really hard to talk about uh, traditional healing or
0: uh, non-Western hegemonic forms of healing because... Uh, sometimes you start to have the conversation and you especially when you're educated within western academia even if you are of uh even if you are a person of color or of indigenous descent uh, it can be really hard to uh, kind of take it seriously sometimes or uh, for it to be taken seriously in certain conversations that's had and i think it's important when talking about indigenous forms of knowledge and alternative forms of knowledge and other forms of healing, that they're not talked about just in a way, uh, it's not performative inclusivity um, for several reasons. Uh, Firstly, uh, there are proven benefits to certain types of uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions. that might have certain pharmacokinetic properties uh, that have just not been reported in a way that is scientifically legible for the scientific community. Um, An example of this is research done by a a medical anthropologist and clinician in the field of psychiatry uh, called Joe Calabresi, who's actually at UCL and he's he's on the teaching, uh, he teaches at at the anthropology department. Um, And he worked with and co-authored a lot of work uh, based around kind of integrating uh indigenous uh, forms of, of therapy, um, particularly the decriminalization of certain uh psychoactive uh traditional indigenous uh, plants, for example, that might be considered illegal because they, they're, they're, you know, psychedelic drugs or whatever it is uh, that have, you know, served a medicinal function historically within indigenous communities. So the first thing is that some of this stuff actually really is, from a scientific perspective, can be proven to work. But secondarily, it doesn't need to be proven to work. Uh, scientifically for it to be taken seriously and that is uh, I say that with quite a lot of a high level of seriousness uh, which can sound ironic because I'm a medical student and maybe I shouldn't be sort of like you know I don't know what is expected from me in terms of the types of narratives I want to be pushed I should be pushing but uh, for me uh, especially within my studies or within over the last 12 months of trying to expose myself to these alternative forms of learning. I think it's just about expanding expanding the imaginative capacity that you have for um, understanding what it means to experience disease. And I think where science has a massive shortcoming Um, And where clinical medicine has a massive shortcoming is in two ways. The first way is in assuming that there is a one size fits all type of body uh, and that you, as long as something is statistically significant and works, uh, that it's, it it works essentially. So there's a whole de-individualization of the disease process to prioritize mass effectiveness, which you know, serves a particular purpose in a particular context, but it's not the only form of perspective that we should have on disease. Um, The second way that we should sort of, that, you know, we should expand our imaginative capacity for the way that we're able to conceptualise the experience of disease is in understanding that uh, people are, agents of their own experiences and what indigenous forms of knowledge can do and what indigenous traditional, uh, indigenous forms of healing can do, um, is especially because the, you know, these, these practices have survived for like hundreds of years. So, you know, there's, there's a method to, to what we're seeing and it's not sort of random. It's a, it's a very, you know, arguably quite an effective system of selection for these types of practices. Uh, but, understanding that if you can influence positively the way that somebody experiences their disease uh, then that that is worth something and that counts for something and that is not reportable information you can't put it on a statistic or you can't put it on a graph uh, and say you know wow we reduced your this level of hormone by this much therefore this drug is effective but kind of getting down to the the local level, getting down to the individual level, getting down to how, how disease is fully experienced, I think will help kind of dismantle some of these, uh, some of the friction that some people of color and some indigenous people have towards clinical medicine. I think clinical medicine needs to kind of diversify what, how it thinks disease is experienced, because the way that it currently does is it's not it's not that effective for uh, democratizing access to medicines. And I think if if medicine wants to seriously start to think about improving access to medicines, how do we get people to be more vaccinated or how do we get people to be more engaged? You have to diversify what you think is a valid way of experiencing disease and be inclusive of that. And if you don't do that, then People can see through the performativeness of these sort of inclusive, uh,
2: inclusive initiatives. Mm. Yeah. So um, I want to thank you for that. I want to, again, just tease out a couple of things. So first of all. There are, you know, indigenous practices are alive today and um, and that vaccination again, doesn't have to follow that one through line. So if we are able to accept that AstraZeneca exists and Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and & Johnson, equally we have to accept that there will be forms of vaccinations that are not part of this Western framework. I am personally partaking in that. Um, spirulina is a millennia-old sacred um Practice of intake within Turtle Island people um, that is now colonialized North America. There are now studies, scientific studies that are catching up and um, and 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 looking at it in terms of a good immune booster um, to fight and rehabilitate against COVID nineteen. But even if we do recognize this indigenous, this indigenous vaccine or indigenous framework towards vaccination, we have to be careful, again, of exploitation, um, that it isn't something that all of a sudden, again, if it comes within a racist capitalist system, that indigenous people will be displaced of their land for the cultivation of, of something like spirulina if it catches a mainstream view, uh, sorry, mainstream um, adoption and then indigenous people are recolonized and retaken off their land. And then they don't have access to, to a sacred practice that they have had for thousands of years. Um, and like spirulina, things like aloe vera and the cactus are also being looked at as, um, as being antiviral. And we have to think about it the same. So if we are, it's not just about as you said performative platforming because indigenous peoples don't need platforming we need just we just need to be left alone to do what we need to do to heal ourselves and to, and to participate in our own practices. And I think that's what's important to highlight about the colonialist system is that sometimes it doesn't even let us participate in our own practices. We don't need to be platformed. I don't need spirulina to be adopted and classified and verified, I should say, by white Western people in order for me to believe in it and use it as my own healing practice. And if it does we need to be careful that it doesn't get trapped in that colonialist machine to where then my people wouldn't have access to that. So, and then the other thing that I think was really salient about what, what you said is about how science create, you didn't use this vocabulary, but we're, we're looking at this word called knowledge supremacy or this term in terms of what you're saying about describing Western science it likes it. It likes its knowledge supremacy um, because that is how you enact colonialism. You create a supremacy across various different platforms. And if you are a scientist sitting at Harvard, UCL, etc., and you say, this is true, this is not true, that is a form of supremacy. It's a form of knowledge supremacy. And then it means that anybody else trying to explore any other type of thing is seen as inferior. And it goes to your point of how do we talk about this seriously? And how do we talk about this? No, how do we get it respected as an intellectual through line or an intellectual pathway as it would if it was a UCL professor talking about molecular composition? Okay, so I'm going to stop there, bring in Manaswini, and then from there bring in um, Selena, because she also um, has a couple of points for this. I agree with almost
4: everything that's been said so far. I just wanted to say that this is this is quite an quite a difficult conversation to have because I again I, I keep coming back to personal experience, but in India, for example, um, Prime Minister Modi has during the pandemic quite quite openly challenged this supremacy of Western knowledge and quite openly advocated for people to go back to Um, practices that are indigenous to India, Um, again, for, like you mentioned, um, um, yoga and using medicinal herbs and all of these things have been um, actively advocated. But in that particular context, the reason is quite quite sinister in some ways, um, because a lot of it is to kind of absolve the government of responsibility, of trying to take care of the Indian healthcare system in in a much broader systemic policy way. And this kind of puts the responsibility back onto the individual saying, oh, you have access to these home remedies, you have access to these things, go do them. Mm -hmm. So it's quite quite a nuanced conversation we need to be having. Uh, All that being said, I 100% agree with the point that if it, improves how a disease is experienced, as Miriam said, put it very nicely, um, by the individual, then there is no need for it to be questioned or for it to be validated, as Arachali said, by Western knowledge. As to whether it should be taken as the only form of knowledge being used, I'm not sure. But at the same time, Western knowledge is also not the only type of knowledge that should be validated. So there needs to
2: be a more integrated discussion okay no those are really really good points and thank you for for bringing them up that um that anything can be used sorry anything can be corrupted and um modi has his specific agenda that he wants to that he wants to propagate that actually ironically is not an indigenous framework um and so so it's it's quite ironic for him to be speaking about indigenous um, practices when when part of indigeneity is kindredship and and connectivity at least in various other indigenous peoples not all because indigeneity is not a monolith but but certainly in in many people's beliefs it's a kindredness and a connectedness and and doing what he's doing is not abiding by but by those frameworks. So yeah, it is quite ironic for him to do that. But in terms of what you said about the individuality of med- of medicine, the UK government has done exactly the same thing. It has blamed its own people for getting sick. Those billboards that the NHS put up that I, I shared in the talk of a black woman holding a salad. What is that saying to someone that a black woman is responsible for getting sick? So we're seeing that type of right-wing corruption all over the world okay selena bring us in and then i think this is going to be a really nice segue into ending the podcast on um informed consent that uh um, and and miriam you both have already alluded to so i'm just going back yeah just talking about alternative medicine again
3: so it was something that i personally was also brought up with with my with my mother um who's from like bangladesh so it's something that i was like um, always in touch with and um whenever I ever tried to like make debates about how it should be integrated into or to get healthcare at the bottom level, uh, sorry, at the lowest levels so with primary care and community outreach, it was also always like uh, met with like laughter or dismissals or something. And But what, so this is something that I, I found quite like amazing when I, when I read about it was um, how Cuba, their Cuban healthcare system. So it's, it's now known, it's, uh, well, I think there's recent articles about how it's the most efficient Um, healthcare system and it's based um, on public health preventative medicine but amazingly it integrates with alternative medicine into it now I'm not quite I haven't researched so much about it so I'm not sure what the framework is exactly but I was just really impressed that they've actually managed to integrate so it's there one of the 1st line treatments for uh, medics to um, use with the community so so with doctors with primary care it's, it's all about having Um, an open dialogue with patients and uh, like hearing about what their needs are what their beliefs are all that kind of thing is about having that understanding and it's also being having a doctor as being part of the community and having the community as part of medicine itself and that is something that's quite disjointed with our current um, with the NHS is that we're, we're struggling with what with staff shortages, et cetera, et cetera. So it's hard. So the emphasis isn't often on primary care and on the community. But I, I was just really impressed that by having public health, but also alternative medicine and being so inclusive, has, it does actually exist in part of the world, in perhaps like a low income country, but it's something that high income countries need to think, focus on because we can um, because it shows that um, framing what the the rebuttal for my previous arguments in the past that it's not efficient it is not proven etc cetera, etc cetera, that doesn't exist now it is most it is the most efficient it's the most effective and that is something that public health perhaps needs to focus more on now mm. um oh and the second yeah the second thing was about like um the patient satisfaction and the um, and having the open dialogue about um, I think Miriam was saying about having um, the values of the community into medicine and that that's something that's I just want to point out because it's something I don't really know much about as a as a medical student and I think one important thing is about like so there's this scheme that a pilot study not pilot study but a pilot kind of scheme of that value-based healthcare about placing what um, patients value most, so it's an equation of value over um, over finance or something like that. So where you actually like study how much the patient actually likes having extra time with the um, with the doctor or with procedures, um, and putting a lot of emphasis on that rather than how if like how uh, like seeing as many patients as you can in the clinic because. Uh, Ultimately, it's about patient outcome. How good is one's quality of life, and how good is um, is one's yeah morbidity, mortality, etc. So, yeah, I thought I'd just point that out just because I, I found it out, and I was like, it's something that really shouldn't be missed. It should be some, something that has some greater emphasis on, um, and yeah, and I think the 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 fundamental beta, beta basis of this is um, communication and an understanding, which brings us on to informed consent, I think, a little bit.
2: Yeah, no, it does. Thank you for that, Selena. I mean, I think it's also even our own decolonization that we have to just always even be alert of sorry, we always have to be alert of our own decolonization. That why does it need to be called alternative medicine? Because then that just <laughs> that just <laughs> what do you call it automatically makes it that the other medicine is is the medicine and anything else is inferior or even the term ethnobotany. I also have problems with that because why is it, why am I ethnic? And then the medicine that is that other people are doing is not ethnic medicine when mm-hmm. technically even pharmaceuticals are taking from, um, from nature as well, um, just in a different, just in a different way and in a different capacity um, that um, we probably should start there with that lexicon medicine is medicine. And um and in terms of proof, well, we're still here, we have survived <laughs> millennia. Um, so we obviously do know how to heal ourselves.
1: Be sure to join us for the next show on the importance of informed consent. And if you've liked what you heard and want to support more conversations like it, please head over to patreon.com forward slash And thank you very much to our three brilliant medics on these conversations.